As Seth already said, we are glad to have each one of you here this morning for our Sunday morning worship period. It's good that we can be here today to worship our Lord. And if you're a visitor today, we're happy and honored to have you with us. And please come back anytime that you can be here with us at McCoynesville. On Thursday night of April the 21st, 1938, in the city of Little Rock, Arkansas, on the third night of a public debate before a crowd of 1,000 people and a radio audience of thousands more, Brother N.B. Hardiman debated a well-known Baptist preacher named Ben Bogard on the subject the establishment of the church. On that night, N.B. Hardiman explained an extremely important truth about the church of Christ when he said this. The kingdom, friends, has always existed. It existed in purpose, in the mind of God. It existed next in promise that's delivered unto the patriarchs. It existed in prophecy and then it existed in preparation. And last of all, when the New Testament went into effect, it existed in perfection. Now, 84 years have come and gone since M.B. Hardiman made that observation. But that is still today an accurate description of Bible truth. Before Adam and Eve were placed in the Garden of Eden, before the sky, sea, and land were filled with birds and fish and animals, before the sun, moon, and stars were placed in the universe, before the earth, seas, and plants were created, before the firmament divided the waters, and before light was divided from darkness, before all of that happened, God purposed to bring into being the church of Christ. This morning, we're continuing the sermon series that I've started on the subject, Questions That Deserve Answers. In the first sermon in this series, we studied the all-important question is the Bible truly the Word of God? And we looked at the internal and the external evidence that it is what we believe and know it to be, the inspired Word of God. In the second sermon in this series, we studied an equally important question. Was Jesus truly the Son of God? 
And we studied and looked at the historical and the Bible evidence that absolutely proves that Jesus was and is who we believe him to be, the divine son of God. Now, as we pointed out in those two lessons, there are people in the world today who have doubts about the answer to those two questions. But there are many, many, many more people who disagree about the answer to the question that we're about to study this morning. Some of you here today, some of you here today may have disagreements with your own friends or even members of your own family about the answer to this question. And there might even be some members of the church themselves who really aren't maybe sure of the answer. And if you are sure of the answer, do you know why you believe it? Could you make a defense to someone else? So the important question that deserves an answer today in this sermon is the question, is there only one true church. And right here on the front end of this sermon, we're going to answer that question. The only correct answer to that question is an unqualified yes. There is only one true church. So our purpose today and the rest of this sermon will be to look at the evidence from both the Bible and from history that proves that statement to be true. In Daniel 2.44, the prophet Daniel said, The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces and all pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. As N.B. Hardiman said in his debate, God had a plan for the followers of his son to be part of a kingdom different from any other. A spiritual kingdom that would stand forever. And that kingdom was to be the church. The Apostle Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 1, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. But when, when did this kingdom 
this divine institution, when did this kingdom begin? Matthew chapter 16 records the very first time the word church is used in the New Testament. In that chapter, Matthew 16, after Peter had confessed Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God, in verse 18, Jesus said to Peter, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. There it is. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, in the original Greek in the New Testament, the word Peter and the word rock on which Jesus said he would build his church, those are two different words with two different meanings. The name Peter that was given to Simon by Jesus, that name in the Greek is the word Petros. And that means a small piece of rock, a single stone, movable, insecure, shifting. Petros. But the word rock in that verse is a different word, Petra which means a cliff, a projecting rock, a huge mass, a solid formation, fixed, immovable, enduring. And those great cliffs that you're seeing there in the picture on the screen are located at Caesarea Philippi where Jesus had that conversation with Peter. I know that because I've been there and seen them. Now, Roman Catholics today believe that Peter is the rock that Jesus was talking about. And they believe that the church is built on him and that he was the first pope. But the meanings of those two words in Greek disprove that belief. You see, Peter himself is not this rock that Jesus said his church would be built on. But the great confession that Peter made and that all other true Christians make today is this rock, solid, immovable and enduring upon which the church would be built. So, when Jesus spoke about his church in Matthew 16, in that chapter we can see six important facts about the church in that passage. First of all, in verse 18, Jesus said, I will build my church. 
Now that's future tense. And that indicates that the church was not yet established. It didn't exist at the time that Jesus spoke those words. Secondly, Jesus said, I will build my church. And that shows that Jesus himself would establish the church and be its foundation. Thirdly, Jesus said, I will build my church. And that indicates that the church would belong to him. Fourth, the words church and it in verse 18 indicate to us that the church that Jesus would build, and everybody get this, the church would be singular in nature. There was only one true church in the first century, not a multiplicity of churches. Fifth, as we already said, his church would be built on the confession that he is the Christ. On this rock, I will build my church. And sixth, Peter would symbolically, symbolically open the doors of this church. Verse 19, Jesus said to Peter, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So, when did those things happen? When did those things happen? And when did the one true church come into existence? Well, about one year later, after the events at Caesarea Philippi in Matthew 16, on the first Pentecost, after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, Peter stood in Jerusalem before a huge crowd of people, and he proclaimed that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, the Son of God. You know, God chose that day the day of Pentecost, because it had always been a part of God's plan to use this day to begin his church. In the Bible, Pentecost was called several different names. There was, of course, the name Pentecost, but it was also called the Feast of Weeks. It was called the Feast of Harvest. And it was also called the Day of First Fruits. Under the Old Testament law, that was the time when God's people celebrated the first fruits of their harvest. They were thanking God for the crops of their fields. And huge crowds of people would come to Jerusalem to make special offerings at the temple. That was the Day of First Fruits. And God, no doubt, chose that day to celebrate the first fruits of his church. 
So, on that day of Pentecost, in the year 33 A.D., Peter gets up and preaches that first great gospel sermon about how Jesus was indeed the promised Messiah, the Son of God. And the crowd was so convicted and so cut to the heart by the realization that they had literally killed the promised Messiah that they interrupted Peter's sermon to ask the question in Acts 2.37 that Austin read, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter answered in the next two verses, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as our, the Lord our God will call. And so on that day, about 3,000 people were baptized into Christ. Acts 2.41 says, we read it. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And so began the church that Jesus built. Christ's church. If you read on a few verses later, down in verse 47, that verse says, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. As people were being saved on a daily basis, the Lord was adding them to his church. Now, here's the critical question that I want us to think about and, and focus on for a few moments. Here it is. To what church were they being added? And that's extremely important because whatever church it was is the church that Jesus himself established. Right? It was the first church, the original church, and it's the one that we and everyone should belong to today. On the day of Pentecost, Jesus established the one true church in the year 33 AD. So what church was it? What church was it? Let's talk about that. Was it the Roman Catholic Church? Now they claim to be the oldest church in the world. But that's impossible. Because the Roman Catholic Church was not established until 606 AD under the leadership of the first man to be called Pope, 
Boniface III. And folks, that was 573 years after Pentecost in 33 AD. So the answer is no, it was not the Roman Catholic Church that was established on the day of Pentecost. All right. Was it the Greek Orthodox Church? Again, no, because the Greek Orthodox Church was not founded until 1054 A.D. when it separated from the Roman Catholic Church. And that was about a thousand years after Pentecost in 33 A.D. Was it the Lutheran Church? Again, no, because the Lutheran Church was started in 1530 as an attempt to reform the Roman Catholic Church. And that was almost 1,500 years after Pentecost in 33 AD. Was it the Mennonite Church? Most of us know something about the Mennonites. Well, the answer is no, because the Mennonite Church began in Europe around 1536. And that was about 1,500 years after Pentecost in 33 AD. Was it the Presbyterian Church? Again, no, because the roots of the Presbyterian Church go back to John Calvin around 1536 in Europe. And that was about 1,500 years after Pentecost in 33 AD. Was it the Baptist Church? No, because historians trace the first Baptist Church to the Dutch city of Amsterdam in 1609 started by a man named John Smith, S-M-Y-T-H. And that's more than 1,500 years after Pentecost in 33 AD. Was it the Amish church? Again, no, because the Amish church originated in 1690 among followers of a man named Jacob Amon. You get the connection there? Jacob Amon. And that was over 1,600 years after Pentecost in 33 AD. Was it the Methodist Church? No, because the Methodist Church was started by a preacher named John Wesley in 1739. And that was about 1,700 years after Pentecost in 33 AD. Was it the Episcopal Church? Again, no, because the Episcopal Church was started in 1789 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania to take the place of the Church of England here in America. And that was about 
1,750 years after Pentecost in 33 AD. Was it the Seventh-day Adventist church? No, because the Seventh-day Adventist church was founded in 1863 by several people, including a woman named Ellen White. And that was 1,830 years after Pentecost in 33 AD. Was it the Mormon church? No, because the Mormon church was organized in 1830 by Joseph Smith in the state of New York. And that's almost 1,800 years after Pentecost in 33 AD. Was it the Jehovah's Witnesses? No, because the Jehovah's Witnesses was started in 1872 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania by a man named Charles Taze Russell. And that's 1,839 years after Pentecost in 33 AD. Was it the Church of God? No, because the Church of God was started in Monroe County, Tennessee in 1886 by a man named Richard Sperling. And that's 1,853 years after Pentecost in 33 AD. Was it the Pentecostal church? No. Because the Pentecostal church was started in 1901 in Topeka, Kansas by a man named Charles Fox Parham based on the belief of speaking in tongues. And that's 1,868 years after Pentecost in 33 AD. Was it the Life Church? No. Because the Life Church didn't exist before 1996 when it was started in Oklahoma by a man named Craig Groeschel and his wife. And folks, that's 1,963 years after Pentecost in 33 AD. On the day of Pentecost, in 33 AD, about 3,000 people were added to the church that Jesus established and built. The one true church, Christ church, the church of Christ. And just as Jesus had promised in Matthew 16, he began building his church that day. And he's been building his church every day since then. Unfortunately, just as hard as Jesus has been at work building his church, Satan has been at work trying to tear it down. Satan has tried to do all kinds of things to destroy 
and eliminate the church of Christ. We see in Acts 8 verse 1 here on the screen that Satan's first attack was the hand of persecution. But Satan soon found out that the more he persecuted the church, the faster it grew. Acts 8 verse 4 says, Therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. And so Satan watched as the church spread from Jerusalem in 33 AD to Samaria, to Galatia, to Asia Minor, to Macedonia, and to Achaia. When Satan realized that he could not stop the church, he changed his tactics. And he decided to corrupt and divide the church. So Satan prompted certain men to follow behind the ministry of the Apostle Paul and teach false doctrines. You know, in his letters to the churches, Paul warns about these false teachers. And he combats their heresy and false doctrines. For example, in 2 Timothy 4, he warns the young preacher Timothy saying this, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. So what was Timothy to do? Paul tells him, 2 Timothy 4 verse 2, preach the word, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. Church history records the apostasy, and that means the falling away or the departure from New Testament principles and patterns that have happened over the years. And that resulted in the many denominations and religious bodies that we have today. You know, today it's estimated that there are more than 200 denominations today in the United States. And about 45,000 denominations worldwide. So what are denominations? Well, the word denomination means a named or a selected division of something. Denominations are formed when religious people and religious groups divide and segregate themselves on the basis of different names and different doctrines. In John chapter 17, Jesus prayed against religious division. And he prayed that his followers would be unified, united. In verse 21 of that chapter, Jesus prayed, 
that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. In 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10, Paul made the same point to the church at Corinth. He said, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing. And look at it, that there be no divisions among you. Now we just read, we just read a statement right there in that verse that says that denominations should not even exist. If a denomination is a named division, then denominations are plainly unscriptural. Paul goes on to say in the same verse, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. I can remember, some of you probably can too, I can remember from childhood seeing milk cartons with uh, the statement, the idea printed on one side, attend the church of your choice. And you know that's still the attitude of a great many people. Along with the false ideas one church is as good as another and we're all going to the same place. But you know the concept, the idea of denominations and multiple churches is absolutely foreign to the New Testament. It's not taught. It's not found. In Ephesians chapter 1, the body of Christ is referred to as the church. In Ephesians 4 verse 4, we're told that there is only one body. One. Now, those two passages on the screen, by themselves should make us see and recognize that the presence of denominations is not in harmony with God's will. Ephesians 4 verse 4 says there is one body. One body. And that one body is the church of our Lord. He established it. He built it. He purchased it with his own blood. So if there is only one true church, then God is not pleased with all the, the named divisions of competing churches with different names and doctrines and practices. The inspired writers of the New Testament mention several names that describe the one true church. For example, in Romans 16, 16, we find the expression, churches of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2, there's a reference to 
the church of God. And in Ephesians 4.12, we have the phrase, the body of Christ. Now, those names were not intended to be technical or formal titles for the church. But rather, those are terms that describe the Lord's church. You know, most of the time in the New Testament, the Lord's church is just referred to as the church. But here's the point that I want to make. Most of the names that people have given to their man-made religious bodies today are not in the New Testament. They're not there. They've come up with names and they've started churches that cannot be found in the New Testament. And that's denominationalism. That's denominationalism. Now we should have no bias or prejudice against any one particular denomination. And I want to make that clear today. But it's also clear when we go to the Bible that denominationalism is an approach to religion that is not in accord with what the New Testament teaches. That's as plain as I can say it. In other words, God does not want denominations to exist. He wants all of us, all people, to understand his will in the New Testament and then bring our lives into conformity with that will. You know, a great many people today in the world think of the church, the church of Christ, as just another denomination. They do. And you know there are even maybe some members of the church who might be kind of confused on that. If the church is or is not a denomination. Can a person be a New Testament Christian without being a part of any denomination? Well, the answer is yes. Absolutely. But if a person is a New Testament Christian only, is he or she a member of any church? And if so, then whose church? The answer, of course, is Christ's church. And his church is not a denomination. In Matthew 16, 18, when Jesus said he would build his church, was he talking about in that verse a collection of denominations with their own organizations and their own creed books and their own doctrines and their own ideas of what the church should be? Is that what he was talking about? Well, the answer is no. In Romans 16, 16 that we already mentioned, Paul writes, the churches of Christ 
greet you. Now, were those denominations? Or were they simply local congregations of people who had become New Testament Christians only? The correct answer is the latter. Now, before we conclude today, I want us to talk about this man. Let's talk about this man. Let's talk about Alexander Campbell. Because there are denominational people today who believe and advocate and teach the false idea that Alexander Campbell started the Church of Christ in the early 19th century during the Restoration Movement. And in the past, their belief in that false idea has caused some of them to refer to members of the church as Campbellites. Campbellites. Some of you may have heard that name or even been called that. But you know the truth is that Alexander Campbell was about 1,800 years too late to establish the Church of Christ. Alexander Campbell was born in Ireland in 1788. And he immigrated to America in 1809. But the churches of Christ existed in the first century when Romans 16, 16 was written by Paul. Right? So Alexander Campbell was not the founder. The Restoration Movement in the early 1800s was the result of people in, in various denominations who realized that they ought to give up human names, human creeds, human traditions, and human religious bodies and go back to the New Testament as their only authority in religion. That's what the Restoration Movement was all about. Alexander Campbell had been baptized as an infant, a baby, into the Presbyterian Church. And as an adult, he became a Baptist preacher. But he realized the errors in Baptist teaching and doctrine. And he became one of the leaders, one of them, of that restoration movement who believed that we should speak where the Bible speaks and be silent where the Bible is silent. Alexander Campbell and others did not start a new denomination. But they wanted to be a part of the body of Christ that already existed in many places during that time. Now, pay attention to this next point. We know from recorded history 
that there were congregations of the Church of Christ in America before Alexander Campbell ever came to America in 1809. We know that. And here are just a couple of very quick examples. And these are not very far from us. The Rock Springs Church of Christ near Salina was started in the year 1805. 1805. It's on their side. You could read that. And that was four years before Alexander Campbell came to America. And that church remains until this day. It's believed to be the oldest church of Christ in America that has met continuously in the same location. And secondly, there was a document found near Salina dated November the 17th, 1736 was the date on this document. And that document tells about the organization of a church of Christ way back in that early time, early 1700s. And that was 52 years before Alexander Campbell was born. And those are only two examples among a number of others that we could spend a lot more time on. So you see, Alexander Campbell did not start the Church of Christ. And Alexander Campbell did not start the Restoration Movement. Alexander Campbell simply became part of a movement that was already underway to restore New Testament Christianity. from the first century until the 21st century today. There have always been individuals and congregations of people who were New Testament Christians because they obey God's word and they were added to the church. And that's what the church of Christ is. A group of people who have obeyed the gospel of Christ and they're living faithfully to it. Today, a person can hear the gospel of Christ and believe on him as the Christ, the Son of God, and repent of their sins and confess the name of Christ and then be baptized immersed in water for the remission of sins, just as people did back in the first century. And doing that will make the same thing happen today as it did 2,000 years ago on the day of Pentecost. A person becomes simply a Christian and is added to the Lord's church.
all of those today who do that in a certain location make up the local church of Christ in that location. And if they remain faithful to the New Testament in doctrine, in worship, in organization, in practice, and in daily life, they will continue to be simply a church of Christ without being a denomination of any kind. Now sadly, we know there are congregations today that, that call themselves churches of Christ that have fallen away from the New Testament pattern. And they've fallen away in one or more of those five areas. And so they are no longer the one true church that we read about and find in the New Testament. Today, you can do exactly what people did in the first century. You can be added to the same church they were added to. The one true church. The same one that began on the day of Pentecost in 33 A.D. If you're not a member of his church today, the one true church, Christ invites you to accept his invitation. And it's the same invitation that he's offered since Pentecost after the people interrupted Peter to ask the question, what shall we do? What shall we do? If you need to respond to that question in any way today, we invite you to come. As together we stand and sing.